You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. Long time no see. I, uh, I love Christmas time. Anyone else just love Christmas time? Yeah, there's that song, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and I agree with that. I love Christmas time, and it's even better now that I have little kids, and you can get the matching jammies out, and you see how excited they get when they eat way too many Christmas cookies, and all of that fun stuff. And uh, really, theologically, it's a beautiful time of the year as well. Uh, We remember the incarnation, and what that means, God in flesh, and that shows us what the author of Hebrews teaches us about Jesus. Uh, that he can relate to us in every way. That, do you realize God gets you when you feel like you're struggling, you feel like there's pain, there's suffering in your life, that God understands you because he literally walked in our footsteps uh, among us as one of us and the humility that that took. And there's beautiful theological truths to be found in Jesus in the manger. And yet, if we're not careful, We can look at all the beautiful, pristine, you know, porcelain nativity sets, and we can forget that Jesus is also not just imminent, but he is also transcendent. He is also mighty God. I think about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so there's this tension that we must manage when we think about who Jesus is and we think about this baby Jesus. He's not just, in the words of Will Ferrell, eight pound, six ounce, newborn baby Jesus. He's not just the the baby in a manger, he is also wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And that's what I hope that we would keep those two theological truths in tension and in balance with one another. And today, we're, we're closing up our Prophets and Kings teaching series, and we got a little bit of a taste of the God of wonders last week, didn't we? We looked at the prophet Elijah, and Elijah has this powerful prophetic ministry where he performs these amazing miracles, things that people had never seen done in human history. And if Elijah introduced us to the God of wonders, then Elisha, his successor, is going to really drive that point home. If you have a Bible, you can open to 2 Kings chapter 2 is where we will be Starting 2 Kings chapter 2, and Elijah's time on earth has come to an end, and he has this servant named Elisha, and it's fitting in some ways that their names sound very similar, so forgive me if I mix their names up a little bit uh, today. It's fitting because Elisha is the successor. He will be the one to take up the mantle of this prophetic ministry during this period of time in Israel. Remember, the northern kingdom of Israel There's an incredible amount of idolatry and sin and rebellion against God, and God sent these prophets to turn the people's hearts back to him. And Elijah had a powerful ministry of that, and yet the time for his his time on earth has come to an end, and they go 
on their way to cross the Jordan River. And let's pick up in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now this is really kind of an interesting uh, exchange and conversation. So Elisha, way back in 1 Kings chapter 19, God prophesied, or God told Elijah he would anoint Elisha as a successor. So the end of 1 Kings 19, uh, Elijah throws his cloak over this young farm boy, and this, this guy is so dedicated to Elijah that he burns his plow, he slaughters the oxen, there's no going back to his, his home on the farm, and he leaves and he, he follows Elijah around for the rest of his prophetic ministry. And what we see here is God has told Elijah it's his time to go and be with the Lord. His time on earth has come to an end, and he's testing Elisha to see if he still has that same level of confidence, that same level of calling and commitment. And so three times, I'm not going to read each of them because they're essentially the exact same exchange where they go to these three different cities, Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And every single time, Elijah says, now I've got to go on, but you stay here. And every time, Elisha responds by saying, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And there's a few thoughts on what exactly is going on here, but I like to think it's a very similar occasion as John chapter 21, do you remember the exchange between Jesus and Peter? Where, where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? How many times? Three times. And Peter says, of course I love you. And he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And he, he, it's this moment of before Peter is tasked with this incredible task of really leading the early church, after Jesus ascends to heaven, Elijah is testing Elisha's commitment. And every single time he passes the test. So they get to the Jordan River. You have the, the old, the aging prophet Elijah. You have his young successor, Elisha. And you have 50 other prophets that are there at the edge of the Jordan River. They go through all these cities. They get to the edge of the Jordan River. And Elijah takes off his cloak, which is a significant artifact for Elijah. He uses his cloak in all these different ways. It was made of coarse animal hair, and he rolls it up, and he smacks the Jordan River, and this, the, the waters part. Does that sound familiar, right? This is thinking about Moses parting the Red Sea, thinking about Joshua crossing over the Jordan River, and, and, and the waters part, and Elijah and Elisha go to the other side of the river, and then the waters come back, and the 50 prophets are left on the west side of the bank, and it's just the lone prophet and his successor who go on. Now, they have this next piece of uh, conversation in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, when they had crossed, two prophets, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. So any last request for me? And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. So keep in mind here, this is a huge request, a massive request. Elijah is like one of the most powerful prophets who ever lived. And Elisha has seen some of the miraculous things that Elijah did during his lifetime. And he says, I want to do twice what you've done. That's a huge, I mean, it, it's a bit presumptuous. Right? It's a bit presumptuous. And Elijah says to him, you've asked a really difficult thing. 
That's a, that's a tall order. That's a huge request. And here's what I'm going to tell you. If you see me taken from the earth, if God allows you to witness me being taken from the earth, then you will be sure that God has granted your request. And what happens next is amazing. Uh, Elijah, I keep saying, notice, his time on earth came to an end. I, I haven't said so far that he died because he didn't. When they're there on the other side of the Jordan River, the heavens open and chariots of fire fly down out of the sky and they pick Elijah up. Imagine that, right? And Elijah, he's like, has to dive out of the way because he's about to get smacked. He's about to get run over, not by a reindeer, right? He's about to get run over by this flaming chariot from heaven. And he, but he dives out of the way and then he looks and he sees the whole thing take place. And then, just as suddenly as the chariots came, they were gone. And the only thing left on the ground is Elijah's cloak. And what happens is Elisha bends down and picks up the cloak, and he walks back to the Jordan River alone. This time, he strikes the water, the water's part. He comes back, and there's an audience of those 50 prophets on the other side. They're just waiting to see what's going to happen. Now, look at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. If this was a Netflix miniseries, it's a roll credits moment at this point. You see that? So this is what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen? He sees the chariots, and then all of a sudden, the two prophets go across, the one comes back, and he's wearing his predecessor's cloak, and there's this line, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And I don't have time to go through all the miracles that Elisha is able to perform during his ministry because it truly is about double the amount of miracles that we saw during Elijah's lifetime. In fact, Bible Project has a great illustration in their overview video for this that really shows, you know, if there are seven, you know, clearly recorded miracles of Elijah, there are 14 of Elisha. And they're essentially, you know, without skipping a beat, the ministry continues. And Elisha is truly a prophet in the spirit of Elijah, except for he's bald. Isn't that crazy? He's bald. He's not as hairy as the aging prophet was, and that shows up at the end of the chapter where some teenagers make fun of him for being bald. He, there's bears that maul the teenagers. It's a crazy story. We don't have time to get into it. We don't have time to get into it today. And, uh, and there's so many miracles. He also raises someone from the dead, and he provides for a widow. Do you remember Elijah did that same thing? He provides for a widow through miraculous means, and he even heals the waters of Jericho, reversing the curse of Joshua. He heals that. And in some ways, Elisha is almost like a second Joshua. Their names both mean God saves. And, and they have this, he has this phenomenal ministry. And I want to talk about three specific miracles today. But before that, I think there's a lesson for us in this massive request of Elisha. And the practice for us is to use whatever God gives you. To use whatever God gives you. I think comparison kills our calling. When we're so busy comparing, well, I'm not as, you know, I don't have the same gifts as that guy or that girl, or they're a much better fill in the blank than I am. And what Elisha does is he asks for a really tall order. 
But the reason why God doesn't view it as presumptuous is Elisha doesn't ask for twice the anointing because he's selfish or arrogant. He doesn't ask for twice the anointing because he wants to be twice the man that Elijah was. He asks for that anointing because he wants to use it for the sake of God's kingdom. He asks for God to bless him in powerful ways so that he can do powerful things for God, not for his own sake or for his own benefit. And for you, I would just say that same thing. Use whatever God gives you. Use whatever God gives you. You may not see fire fall from heaven like Elijah did. You may not see an ax head floating like Elisha did or you know, the 13 other miracles we see recorded from him. But use whatever God gives who? You. Use whatever God gives to you. And, and it's even appropriate, we see here, to ask God to gift you or to anoint you for the sake of his kingdom. Not bless me so I can experience the blessing, bless me so I can be a blessing and we can expand God's kingdom. We see something very similar in 1 Timothy chapter four. This is Paul writing to his successor in a way, his apprentice, Timothy. He says this in verse 14 and 15, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that, you, so that all may see your progress. And it's this beautiful exchange where, where Paul is writing to Timothy, this young church leader, and he's just gotten done saying, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. So if you think I'm young, right? Just like look at Timothy, look at the apostles, look at the early church leaders. They're 20 something year olds. And what, what Paul says, he says, don't let anyone look down on you. Instead, use whatever God has given you. And he's, God has given him through the, the appointing from the elders and the laying on of hands of prayer, some kind of special ministry gifting. And what Paul says is don't be ashamed of that gifting. Use it. And in fact, as you use it, as you use what God entrusts you for his kingdom, guess what? Jesus taught us something about that. Those who are faithful in a little will be given more. As you use what God has given you, and so if you have this, this hesitancy of getting involved and serving and how can God use me, the best place to start is just to get started. It's to start using whatever God has given you and watch as the Holy Spirit empowers you and equips you and, and gives you more anointing for the sake of ministry. And so I would just call on you to get involved and use your gifts for God's Kingdom. All right, we're gonna look at three miracles. There's 14, there's a lot of miracles. We're just gonna look at three. And each one of these miracles, to make it easier to remember from Elisha's ministry, is they each correspond to one of our five senses. So the first miracle is a miracle of touch. And this is from 2 Kings chapter five. If, you have, if you're still there, you can turn a few pages. 2 Kings chapter five, a miracle that has something to do with the sense of touch. And it begins in an interesting way, speaking of an enemy for the people of Israel. 2 Kings chapter five, verse one. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, that is one of the opponents for the northern kingdom. It's one of the common threats. They were always at war with them. So Naaman is an enemy. He's a high-ranking official in the army. He was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given him victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but... He was a leper. So you have this incredible soldier. You have this high-ranking Syrian official, and yet, you know, he has this position, political power, 
He has positional power. He has probably economic power. He's probably wealthy. Physically, he has leprosy. And that word leprosy in uh, the Bible can refer to kind of a number of different diseases, but essentially what it means is he has this chronic skin disease, he's unclean, and he can't do what? Can't touch anyone. Imagine that. Imagine not being able to give your loved ones a hug. Imagine not being able to shake someone's hand. I mean, if you think, you know, the pandemic and social distancing was difficult, having leprosy is a whole new ballgame. Okay? And Naaman, while he's very powerful in a lot of ways, he has this ailment. And what's so interesting about Naaman's story is it tells us that there's actually a slave in his household, a little girl. Now imagine this. Naaman goes into Israel to kill Israelites, and on one occasion, likely killing this young girl's parents, he takes her back to his household to be a slave, So he is an enemy for her. And this little girl, instead of holding this grudge of bitterness, what she does is she actually speaks wisdom and advice to Naaman. And she actually has mercy on him. And she says, if you wanna be healed, go back to Israel. There's a holy man there, a man named Elisha. He can help you. Now that's a little bit of foreshadowing for really what the lesson of Naaman teaches us about God and the mercy that he has even on his enemies. So what Naaman does is he goes to the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, and he gets a letter from him, he gets all these riches and fine clothing, 10 sets of fine clothing from him, and he goes not to Elisha, he goes to King Jehoram, who's the king of Israel at this point in time, and he asks the king to tell the prophet to tell God to heal him because he doesn't understand. He understands positional authority, and he's thinking, this clues us in, he's thinking about the God of the Israelites very similar to the Canaanite pantheon of gods, right? You know, your little idol works for whatever priest who works for the king, right? And that's backwards for the spiritual hierarchy of authority. No, in fact, the king needs to listen to the prophet who listens to God, who's the top of the pyramid, right? So he has this a little bit backwards, and it, it almost leads to Warfare, because the king is like, I can't heal you. I can't tell the prophet. I can't do any of that stuff. So he thinks it's a challenge from the king of Syria, and it's this whole mess. Well, eventually what happens is Naaman ends up at the front door of Elisha's house. And he's there with his entourage. He's there with his gifts. He wants to buy a miracle, okay? He shows up, knocks on the door, and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He doesn't even come to the door. And this is, this is infuriating to Naaman because he's traveled all this way. He has the money, right? I can afford to buy my miracle from you. You listen to me, right? It's kind of this, he doesn't quite understand what's going on here. And Elisha tells his servant to tell Naaman, go wash yourself in the Jordan River. And if you wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times, when you come up, you will be clean, cleansed. And this is, what, this is what Naaman's response is in 2 Kings 5, verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me. He doesn't even want to talk to me, right? You see his pride, his arrogance. He he would come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper, right? He's got in his mind not just the miracle he wants, but how he wants the miracle to take place. 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, so those are rivers back home for him, are not they better than all the waters of Israel? A little bit of arrogance there. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Do you see the irony here? A man with leprosy who is unclean is afraid of getting unclean by going in a dirty river and he, he's got his priorities all out of whack. He has his understanding of authority. He doesn't just want the miracle. He wants to tell Elisha how the miracle is going to take place. How often do we do that? We don't just want God to answer our prayers. We want to tell him exactly how he should answer our prayers. We don't just pray for provision. We pray for the exact way. And if God doesn't give us what we want, I'm going away in a rage. And we do that. And that we can see here the character flaw that comes from a place of pride, thinking that we are in a position to make demands with God and tell him what he has to do for us. And he goes away, and he's not, gonna, he's not gonna do it. He's traveled all this way, he's brought all this money, he's not gonna do it. And then one of his servants is like, could you at least try? Like on the way home, they're like, I mean, maybe like give it a shot. Take, you know, take like a bath three times in the Jordan. You don't have to do the seven. And so he's like, fine, okay? So he goes, and he goes down. And this is crazy. Like reluctantly he goes, he dips into the water seven times, and the seventh time he comes up, and guess what? He's healed. Naaman is healed. And then this is what happens in verse 15 of chapter five. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. There's a little bit of a different tune here. And he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And Naaman, his heart, is, it's not just that his body is cleaned, his heart is cleaned. And his pride, there's a different tune here. What happens is it's, it's Kind of crazy, even. He, he tries to give Elisha the money, right? He's like, well, you, you at least need to, like some of these nice clothes or this. And Elisha says no. And that's a lesson. You can't, you can't bribe God. You can't buy a miracle from God. You can't buy a, an answer to prayer from God. This is, this is to show that God heals and he shows mercy even on the enemies of Israel, even on the people who are least likely to deserve it. And so what Naaman does is it's so crazy. He says, well, if I can't give you something, could I at least take two large bags of soil from Israel back to my home in Syria so that when I kneel down to pray, I can kneel and my knees can feel, they can touch the soil of Israel as I pray to the God of Israel. That is a transformation story and a miracle that God did in the life of one of his enemies. So here's the lesson for us. Follow God's instructions as he knows best. Follow God's instructions in your life. Follow the teachings of Jesus and the way of Jesus. He it truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And to Naaman, it sounds totally bizarre. What, you want me to go in the Jordan River? What, you want me to actually go and talk to the prophet? I can't talk to the king about this? Right, And even if there's things that don't quite make sense to you, humble yourself before the Lord and understand that God knows what he's talking about when he gives us instructions. Instructions for your life, for ethics, for sexuality, for your finances, for relationships. Understand that Jesus's way truly is best. 
And in, in fact, if Naaman didn't have the humility required to get down in the water, he would never have experienced the healing that came from following God's instructions. And there's ways in our lives where we don't follow God's instructions, it leads to pain, it leads to heartache, but when you humble yourself before the Lord, it leads to healing. It leads to healing. That's the first miracle I wanna talk about. The second one is 2 Kings chapter six. It's a miracle of sight, okay? The first one was touch, everyone, little jazz hands, okay, jazz hands. Second one is sight with your eyes, okay? The second miracle is a miracle of sight. So Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, so this is the guy in charge of Naaman, he finds out that Elisha has been giving counsel to the king, King Jehoram of Israel. And it's crazy because every time that the king of Syria wants to go and attack and kill the Israelites or to kill the king, they always avoid it somehow. And he, he gets to the point where he thinks he has a double agent in his, his cabinet, in his officers. He's like, who's the mole? We gotta find out who it is. And someone uh, in, his, in his royal uh, officers, they say, no, 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 Elisha is like Santa. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness. No, it, and it's kind of like, no, Elisha knows. That's the thing. Elisha is giving counsel and wisdom to the king and he sees every move, every political, every, every warfare move that you are about to make, Elisha is telling the king what you're gonna do. And so what the, what the king Ben-Hadad realizes is he realized if we're going to beat Israel, we have to beat the prophet Elisha. Look on with me in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. Speaking of Elisha, and, and it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So Elisha goes to sleep, and he wakes up in the morning, and he has a servant there. And the servant goes and looks out, and he's like, I gotta tell Elisha about this, because the city is surrounded. There's a siege in the city. And so uh, he wakes up Elisha, and he's like, you gotta come out and see this. We're gonna die. And Elisha wakes up, makes his coffee, kind of takes his time. He goes out and he looks and he's like, ah, don't worry about it. And the servant is like, what? Don't worry about it. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And so the servant is like, okay, so let me just count for a second. There's you and me, that's two. And I see hundreds, maybe thousands of soldiers who are here to kill us. What are you talking about? And Elijah prays for a miracle of sight. In verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah or Elisha. So what Elisha says is, see, can you see? See, what the, the, the young servant was seeing is he was seeing the problem. He was seeing the army. He was seeing the horses and the chariots. And what Elisha was able to see is he was able to see the horses and the chariots of fire. He was able to see the hand of the God who works wonders. And maybe a lesson for us is to open your eyes to God's power. 
Open your eyes to God's power. Understand that when you pray, you are praying to the one who created the universe out of nothing. When you pray, you're praying to the God who has a multitude of horses and chariots of fire. I think about that line from Jesus when he was being arrested. His disciples didn't know. They thought the situation was out of his control. And he says, don't you understand? At any moment in time, the heavens can open and I can call down thousands, millions of angels to come and to to, to do something, to rescue, open your eyes to God's power. And so Elisha prays, and the, the eyes of his servant are opened, and then he prays, and the eyes of the army are closed, and they're blind. So that's another miracle of sight, where he, he prays that this young man can see, and then he prays that the army can't see. And they're blinded, and Elisha goes out, they're in the city of Dothan, which is about 12 miles away from Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, and Elisha goes out, and this, you can imagine like the chaos, right? If everyone, you know, hundreds of soldiers, maybe thousands, went blind all of a sudden. They're like, where are you, where are we, right? And Elisha's like, hey, I think he went this way. And so they're like, all right, follow that guy. He's like, yeah, you're gonna get him, you know? And so Elisha marches the army about 12 miles away, right through the city gates of Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And then he gets all the soldiers there. He's like, all right, I think we got him surrounded. And he prays again, and God opens the eyes of the army, and they see instead of them trapping Elisha in the city, Elijah has trapped them in the capital city of Israel. And they're like, oh no. And King Jehoram and he sees this, this miracle take place and he says to Elisha, so do we kill him? Do we kill all these soldiers? And this is an amazing lesson. This is what happens. Elisha says, you're not gonna kill someone who you didn't deliver by your own sword. Instead, I've got a better idea. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 23. So he prepared for them a great, what? Feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on the raids into the land of Israel. What if instead of killing them, what if we have a meal with them? This is very similar. Here's our practice. It's straight from the teachings of Jesus. Love your enemies. Think of who are the enemies in your life? And some of you would say, well, I don't have enemies. Who are the people you least wanna have dinner with? Think about those people. Maybe it's not an enemy in the strict sense as they'll kill you or anything. Maybe you don't have a feud between a neighbor or anything like that. Who are the people that you can't stand to be around? Jesus taught us to do exactly what Elisha is doing here, to love your enemies. And love doesn't mean you always feel great about those people or that you really you know, crave spending time or going out with them or anything like that. What love means is it means you serve them. It means instead of giving them a sword, you give them a feast. Instead of speaking evil of them, you actually do something to help them. We love not just through our emotions, and even if it's difficult to have those emotions towards difficult people in your life, people who seem like they're out to get you in your life, you can still treat them with the sacrificial love of Christ. And notice the result. The result is none of those soldiers are marching back to come do raids on Israel anymore because they've experienced mercy, a tangible act of mercy. Paul in Romans 12, 20 and 21 says it like this, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed him, exactly what Elisha does. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the way that we overcome. That's the way that people understand the good news of the gospel truly is good news. It's through our good works. It's not, just, it's not through winning arguments on Facebook. It's not through winning arguments in person. It's not through yelling at someone that someone understands the good news of the gospel. It's by overcoming evil with, with good. Throw a feast. Invite someone over to your dinner table. Overcome evil with good. That's the second miracle. The miracle of sight. I'm gonna touch your eyes. And the third one, the miracle of sound. Second Kings chapter seven. So what happens is the kindness and the mercy that Elisha and King Jehoram showed to the Syrians, it wears off after some time. We're not sure exactly how many years later, but eventually it kind of wears off. And pretty soon the soldiers are coming back and they've actually sieged the city of Samaria at this point in time, the capital city. And conditions are really, really bad. Conditions are really, really uh, quite catastrophic, in fact, where people are resorting to all kinds of means because no one, imagine this, you're in a city, there's no Amazon Prime, there's no drones dropping your Christmas presents at your door, there's no way in or out of the city without dying. And so it cuts off the food supply. It cuts off the supply of, of even clean water and, and, and people are resorting to all kinds of crazy things just so they can survive. And what happens is the king encounters these two women, and, and I won't go into details because it's a little too horrific, honestly, but they resort to, to these, this crazy means to try and stay alive, and the king sees this, and he's like, I'm gonna kill Elisha. I mean, he has the power, right? He, he saved a city from being under siege before, in the previous chapter. Why can't he do that here? Why isn't Elisha calling on God to do something? And he goes and he actually sends the captain of the guard to Elisha's house to kill him. And in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, but Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord to the captain of the guard. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. That's just another way of saying the economy is going to recover. The, the inflation that you're experiencing, the supply chain issues, whatever, however you wanna contextualize it, what he's saying to the captain of the guard, and he doesn't actually open the door. He just says that through the door because he doesn't want the captain of the guard to kill him. And, and the captain of the guard doesn't believe him. He says, because of that, you're not gonna actually see this come into fruition. You're gonna die before you get to enjoy the fruit of what I'm talking about. But God is going to heal the city. And then the story in 2 Kings chapter 7 pans over to outside the city to a group of four men with leprosy, right? They're outside the city because they have leprosy, right? They're isolated, they're unclean, they can't be touched. And so in some ways, they're free, right? They're not trapped in the city, but they're in between the city and the army. And so they're trapped, right? They have no place to go. And they, they have this moment where they're like, what good is it doing us to stay here and die? We can't go in the city because they'll kick us right back out because we have leprosy. And we can't go to the army because they'll kill us. Who should we try our luck with? And they say, well, let's try our luck with the Syrians, the enemies. All right. So they grab their, their, their meager belongings and they walk over to see what's going on with the army and they look out across the enemy encampment and it's empty tents blowing in the wind. The army has completely fled. 
It's completely gone. And this is what we see in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians, what's that next word? Hear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they think that maybe you know, he sent a little carrier pigeon over to the Hittites or the Egyptians or you know, somehow there's a political alliance, but in fact... What they were hearing was that sound of the flaming chariots, the army of the the God of heavenly hosts. And through this miracle of just sound, the enemies are so, they're, they're so afraid of this. They flee, and guess what they leave behind? All of their stuff. They leave all of their clothes, they leave their animals, they leave their gold and their silver, they leave all they leave all of their stuff behind. Now you have a supply and demand issue, right? You have the demand in the city and there's the supply right there outside of the city. And what happens is these lepers go out and they're like, we're saved, the four of us. The four of us are saved. And they go out and they're grabbing stuff and you can, they're drinking, they're eating food. They're like, yeah, they're living it up. And then somewhere along the afternoon, they realize, wait a second. It's not just that we're saved. Who else is saved? Everyone living in the city because they hadn't found out. They hadn't heard the news. So there was literally freedom available on the other side of the city wall, but people were still living in captivity. This is what it says in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9. Then they said to one another, this is the lepers, we are not doing right. This is a day of, everyone say it, good news. This is a day of gospel And if we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Man, this is such a beautiful picture of what we see in the gospel, that the victory has already been won through Christ's death on the cross. Do you realize that? The price has been paid, the victory has been won, and how many people in this world are still living in that captivity? Freedom is available, but they're still living in captivity as slaves to sin and to death. And if you're here and you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, I have have good news for you today. Today is the day of salvation for you. Salvation is available when? Today. It was won in Christ's death on the cross 2,000 years ago. And through his resurrection from the grave, there is now hope. You can be free You can be reconciled with God. Your relationship with God can be made right. Your guilt, your shame, your sins can be washed away. Would you humble yourself to the waters of baptism? And would you say yes to following Jesus and go under the water and be raised back up and be totally cleansed and healed from the person that is full of sin and shame? And I would invite you, today can be the day that you say yes. Salvation is available today. And the reality is, when we say put your faith in Jesus, it's not just you believe that Jesus lived and walked the earth, or even that you believe he died on the cross and rose. Again, imagine this. Imagine if the lepers went into the city and they told everyone, hey, guess what? The victory is won. And people said, that's amazing. I'm still not gonna go outside the city. I believe you. No, I really do. I believe you. I believe that I can eat food again. I believe that, that there, there is freedom available on the other side of the city wall, but I just don't believe it enough 
to live any differently. For us, what it means to put our faith in Jesus is not just to believe that Jesus is Lord, it's to live like Jesus is Lord. To say, not only victory is available, I'm gonna enjoy the victory I have in Christ by following Jesus with everything. And I wanna invite you, if you've never been baptized, January 2nd, we're gonna fill the baptistry, and we've got people already signed up, and we would invite you, maybe, maybe the first Sunday of the near, new year can be new year, new you, in a true sense, right? where you can experience baptism and saying yes to following Jesus with everything. You can find out more about baptism on our website, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. You can sign up on a Connect card today. But for you, if you've already experienced a new life in Christ, here's the practice for you. This is very, very important for you. Don't keep the gospel to yourself. We find ourselves in the same exact position as those four leprous men, don't we? Where if you've experienced the good news, you're enjoying the spoils of the battle, you're experiencing God's blessing and favor in your life. What they realize, like like props to the one of those guys who, who has this moment like, wait, we're not doing right if we're just enjoying the blessing for ourselves and we're not sharing the good news with others. Don't keep the gospel to yourself. In this season, we remember that God cares about the outsiders. God cares about the Naamans of our world who've done unspeakable evil, and yet still he wants to show mercy on them. God cares about the Syrian army who is there trapping Elijah, trying to kill him, and he throws them a feast. God cares about even these four lepers who are unclean, untouchable, and they were social outcasts. And God, in fact, uses them to spread the gospel message to these people. Good news, today's a day of victory. Victory is available on the other side of the city walls. And I would just say to you, this season, this Christmas season, is one of the most unique times every single year that people have an openness to hearing the gospel. They have an openness to coming to church. And I hope that that maybe you got to, I think I had an invite card in one of these pockets. Nope, fell out. Okay, I had a Christmas Eve invite card with me. Hopefully, Hopefully you picked up a Christmas Eve invite card on the way in. And if you didn't, pick one up on the way out. These cards, these Christmas Eve invite cards, they expire in four days. (laughs) There's not a literal expiry date on them, but Christmas, it's hard to believe that Christmas Christmas Eve is so close, right? This year has flown by. But you have four days, and I would say, take a Christmas Eve invite card and pray and ask God, who is the person that you are leading me to invite someone who needs to hear the good news of the gospel. I'm praying for a full house and for open hearts. To remind you of this passage from Romans 10, 14, where Paul writes to the church, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never, everyone say it, heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And that word preaching might sound really fancy to you. You don't have to prepare a sermon like I do. You can simply tell someone the good news of the gospel by talking to them about what God has done in your life. You can can simply share the good news of the gospel by saying, would you sit next to me at Christmas Eve? And then maybe you grab coffee the next week. Say, in the new year, I'd love to just get together with you and talk about what was your experience in church, good, bad, or otherwise. And you can invite someone, you can share a link on social media, you can give an invite card, but we, as the church, need to look for opportunities to tell people the good news of the gospel. Will you do that in the next four days? Will you do that in the next four days? 
We need an answer here. Will you do that? Yes. Okay. Let's pray. God, thank you that the gospel is good news in our lives. Thank you that we have the opportunity to be forgiven, to be saved, to be cleansed. We know that even if we don't experience the miracles that we're asking for right here in this present age, we know, Jesus, you are coming back. We know that every tear will be wiped away and we trust you in this present age, God. And we just ask God that you would continue to cleanse our hearts in the ways that they need to be cleansed. That you would give us hearts of mercy for the outsiders, for even our enemies, the difficult people in our lives. And God, I pray that you give us boldness this next week to share the gospel, maybe even to share an invite with someone for Christmas Eve this year. We pray that you would do powerful things in the days ahead. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.